Hello, this is Noreen Brayman coming to you again with Treading Water, the Pandemic Edition. This is episode number two, Treading Water. In the Tao of Womanhood, it is written, Nothing in the world is more gentle than water, yet nothing is stronger. And nothing has been running through my life in waves and buckets and flash floods more than water. Perhaps it is because my ancestors hailed from Ireland and Scotland, island countries, that water seems to follow me. Perhaps an ancestor generations ago angered a Celtic water sprite and the revenge has carried through to my generation. I can't be sure how it started, but one thing I am sure about, I am tired of mopping up. The Daily News is full of reports of horrific floods mudslides, and global warming that threatens to melt the polar ice caps. Thankfully, my problems with liquefied hydrogen and oxygen do not reach those proportions. No, instead, I deal with the steady water torture drip of one soggy incident after another. The analogy is, of course, that we all come from a womb that is full of water, and looking back over the evolutionary trail, we find muddy tracks leading right back into a primeval swamp. Maybe I was just reverting to primitive instincts when, at six years old, I decided to fill up the bathtub, spritz in bubble bath, and let the water level rise to the top of the shower doors. Well, maybe I did forget the water was running, but I sure remembered when my mother encountered a waterfall of bubbles cascading down the steps of our Brooklyn home. Flooding the house is a required skill for any kid. My son overflowed the toilet in our townhouse, and soon the water was pouring through the ceiling, blowing out the recessed lights like fireworks. The mysterious part, however, is why at that precise moment of toilet clogging did the water to the toilet decide it was not going to shut off, sending rivers of water down the hall, through the ceiling, even reaching the basement two floors below. During a recent meeting of the Garden State Horror Writers, I may have discovered the answer. Lecturing that day was a professional ghost hunter, and she mentioned how many ghosts are seen around water sources, especially bathrooms. Now to me, that sounds like there's an epidemic of dysentery in the afterlife, but the ghost hunter assured me that water is a source of power and life, and it attracts supernatural forces. Quite possibly, at the exact moment my son was clogging the toilet, a jovial spirit may have decided to play a little prank on us. It could have been a spirit that has been following me all my life. After all, it would be a good explanation for the singing toilet of my childhood. I know that pipes can bang and whistle and imitate the entire percussion section of the New York Philharmonic. But the toilet in our house, every time it was flushed, would let out a tone so tuneful and long, it would have made Pavarotti jealous. Logic dictates that such a mischievous water sprite has alternately inhabited the dishwasher, washing machine, and bathtub, all normal sources of flooding incidents. What frightens me is the possibility that these supernatural comedians may get together in force to play their little practical jokes. 
I'm sure if you think about it, you will realize it is true. I am talking about the beach. I now live in New Jersey and going to the beach, the shore as we call it, is a required rite of passage. All of us can relate stories of the wave that knocked us down, carried us out and almost deposited us on the shores of France. That's normal, but consider this. Once my children and one of their friends were standing by the waves, just watching. When the water would come too close, they would run back up on the sand giggling. This must have angered something or someone because the next thing I know is a wave sends up a large spray that smacks the friend right in the nose, giving him an instant nosebleed. Another time, my two daughters were sitting on the edge of the water playing in the shallows. They were splashing and laughing. Suddenly, a wave comes rushing in, knocking them over. As the wave receded, I was shocked to see that both girls had been turned upside down and were stuck by their heads in the sand. Their little arms and legs were flapping around uselessly as they tried to right themselves like overturned turtles. I don't need to be hit over the head with the moral of these stories. Do not laugh at the ocean. It will get you. My list of watery encounters is lengthy. Every house my parents ever owned had a leaky basement. On one occasion, the leak was lapping halfway up the basement stairs. In one of the apartments I lived in, the radiators began spewing reddish black liquid. Since the radiators were inside covers, I had no idea what was going on until my downstairs neighbors knocked on the door to calmly ask, why was blood running down the walls? Their calm was surprising, but perhaps they had been softened by the previous week's flood in their kitchen caused by my overflowing portable washing machine. Looking back, I wonder if all this water trouble was related to the man in the bathtub that my toddler daughter insisted she could both see and talk to. The battle goes on to the present day. After sinking all my money into my current house, the crawl space underneath it suddenly filled up with four inches of water. Electric wire sizzled, shorting out the refrigerator and the water heater. My oldest daughter, who was both dirty and hungry at the time, blamed me entirely. I don't even want to get into what happened when the sewer backed up or when the pipes froze and the water meter exploded on Christmas Eve. Most recently, on the night before I was to enter the hospital for surgery on my personal plumbing, my sump pump died in the middle of a monsoon. I've thought about traveling to Scotland to find out exactly what happened between my relatives and the water nymphs. From there, I may have to go to Ireland to find out which leprechaun is dousing my family. Until I get to the bottom of it, there's only one thing to do. Keep treading water. Chapter 1. Blasts from the Past I find that the further I go back, the better things were, whether they happened or not. Mark Twain singing and swinging 70s style. The old saying goes that if you save things long enough, sooner or later they come back in style. I was reminded of this when my daughter showed me the hot new styles featured in her trendy magazine. There were the polyester shirts, hip hugger pants, and platform shoes of the 70s. 
For a minute, I was taken back to my teenage years. Back in the 70s, when bell bottoms couldn't be wide enough, hair couldn't be long enough, and everyone was rocking to the sounds of Glenn Miller, Tommy Dorsey, and Benny Goodman. The dance band was called the Indigos and had been filling the high school band room for years with the sound of swing. It may have been too much sound for a bunch of high school kids, but we played anyway. Just when we were feeling like we had given Mood Indigo the definitive treatment, our director, Mario DiCarlos, would take out his old shiny saxophone and wail. It was hard to not just stop playing and listen to him. He really knew those songs and played them with the feeling of a person who had lived through it. Sooner or later, it was my turn to climb out from under the baritone saxophone and step up to the microphone. The guys did not like this part. They wanted to cut loose with In the Mood or String of Pearls. And there I was, ready to pour my 16-year-old heart into Sentimental Journey or You Made Me Love You. I tried not to antagonize the guys. After all, it didn't take much to drown me out. Worse than hitting a wrong note or forgetting the lyrics was knowing that all the audience got out of my performance was a look at a girl moving her lips to an old swing song. Occasionally, they were not shy about letting me know. Can't hear you, an audience member would shout. Turning up my amplifier usually produced lovely feedback, and due to school budget cuts, I was sharing the amp with the electric guitar player, who didn't mind being turned up at all. The result was a combination of Rosemary Clooney and Jimi Hendrix. In addition to our unique sound, we were an interesting sight. Our white wraparound music stands were emblazoned with the band's logo, and our instruments ranged from the brand new to battered school-owned relics. We learned the choreography, standing up, swaying, and swinging our instruments. Well, they stood up. I never could lift that baritone off its stand. Our dress code required that the guys wear jackets and ties with their bell-bottom pants. The combination of plaid jackets, striped ties, and fluorescent miniskirts could be hard on the eyes. Other times, it was the guitar player's long hair that drew stares. It appeared as if there had been a mix-up in the transporter room and a bunch of 70s hippies had been beamed down into a 1940s canteen. In fact, a similar incident actually happened on Star Trek and Leonard Nimoy's nephew did go to our school. Not too long ago, I heard familiar music emanating from my daughter's room. It only took a few notes to tell me that she was playing in the mood. In mid-song, the tune changed to Pennsylvania 65000, then Little Brown Jug. When my daughter was playing was a cut from a CD by a group calling itself Jive Bunny and the Master Mixers. It was a little disconcerting for my daughter to discover that her new hit record contained music not only remembered by her mother, but by her grandmother also. Swing music really bounced back in a big way when the Brian Setzer Orchestra hit the charts with Jump, Jive, and Wail, a song that had originally been featured on a television commercial. It was not a surprise for this graduate of the class of 73. After all, you keep things long enough, they come back. I guess I'll hang on to that last pair of bell bottoms, my high school band jacket, some peace sign jewelry, and my yearbook with Richard Nixon's picture inside the cover.
I'll dig out the old Blood, Sweat and Tears album and tuck it in the box alongside ones by Glenn Miller and Duke Ellington. Then, to complete this odd juxtaposition of errors, I'll throw in photographs featuring the concert that Stan Kenton and his band played at my school. If you look really close, you can see that they are wearing bell-bottoms too. The Drive-In and Me This past January, the last remnant of a once-proud New Jersey institution fell to the wrecking ball of progress. The ruins of the shore drive-in in Wall were taken down as the property is readied for construction of yet another shopping center. New Jersey, the place where it all began in 1933, now no longer has a single drive-in movie. It made me stop and think. From the Sunrise Drive-In on Sunrise Highway in Long Island to the Turnpike Drive-In in East Brunswick, New Jersey, the summers of my childhood were spent in the drive-in. Going to the movies in the back of my parents' station wagon was a big part of what made summer magic. Of course, some incidents stand out clearer than others. While everyone around me was wailing his or her eyes out during the movie Love Story, obviously they thought that by being in their cars they were automatically soundproof, I was impatiently waiting for Allie McGraw to kick the bucket. I never did get to see her die because just then, a car driven by a person who was obviously intoxicated tried to get into the space next to me. I knew that the speaker didn't work, but I kept my mouth shut as the drunk driver tried to get into the space. First, he went in front ways and was so crooked he couldn't reach the speaker. Then he tried to back in, rolling over the little embankment you were supposed to park on and almost into the car in the row in front. He obviously thought that the car he had almost rammed was somehow in the wrong because he started to blow his horn. This made all the sobbing moviegoers in the surrounding car start to blow their horns, and noses too, I imagine, and scream obscenities out their windows. Finally, the drunk drove all the way around again, this time pulling perfectly into the space. When he finally was lined up with the non-working speaker, the movie was over. When I came back from the snack bar, he had obviously figured out that something was wrong with the sound and the car was gone. I'll also never forget the boyfriend who took me to the turnpike drive-in to see Snoopy come home. Keep in mind that I'm a big Peanuts fan and I really did want to pay attention to the movie. Anyway, he kept yammering on and on about women, their place, and all about his dad making all the decisions for his mom. She didn't want a Cadillac convertible, especially red, but Dad knew once he got it for her, she would love it. And we still have the car. We were, in fact, in it. Eventually, the conversation got around to the fact that he was starting college in the fall. At around the same time that Snoopy was being kicked out of Lila's hospital room, no dogs allowed, he was telling me how his dad thought he needed to be serious about schoolwork, not girls. He was trying to break up with me and right in front of Charlie Brown. How tacky. A few years later, my friend Marianne and I decided to have a girls' night out at the movies. We decided to go see a scary movie at the drive-in. After all, we were grown-ups. We could handle a little fright. The movie was called The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 
the two of us sat stone still in the car, paralyzed by horror, not even able to start up the car and get out of there. When the movie finally ended, we still sat there, staring at the dancing hot dogs and soda. The intermission music barely covered up the eerie sound behind us. The crunch, crunch, crunch of footsteps slowly coming up to the car. At the same instant, both Marianne and I bolted out of the car, almost plowing down a guy who was returning to his car with snacks. Now, there are no drive-ins left in New Jersey. Land had become too valuable. Yet I still pass by the condos that sit where the turnpike drive-in used to be and sigh. My kids will never know what it's like to see a movie under the stars on a hot summer night. They'll never experience what it is like to see Jaws on a screen that makes the shark 40 feet long. Heck, they don't even know what it's like to sit through two movies and go home so late you're not sure what day it is. Well, they'd probably complain that it was too hot in the back seat and they wouldn't be able to see over my head and they'd want the speaker in their window except their windows don't roll down and they'd spill soda all over the upholstery and squash popcorn into the rug. Zen and the art of high maintenance hair. Sometimes when the kids aren't yelling that we're late for ballet class and the husband isn't tapping his watch and I have a spare minute before I have to be at one of my part-time jobs, I find myself staring into the mirror at a complete stranger. Sure, I accept the fact that I've gained two pounds a year since I graduated high school. You could do the math. And I've learned to grin even though smiling is contributing to those widening lines in the corners of my mouth and eyes, but this hair thing is something else. Thankfully, I was too young or too unsophisticated to ever have a beehive hairdo. There were girls in my junior high school that did, usually the same girls with all that dark eyeliner and white lipstick. For me, however, and most of my peers, boys included, it was a long straight down your back in your face look. Every day I washed it, left the house with it wet, and reveled in the natural look. Since I have fine straight hair, it was the perfect style. I never knew that behind closed doors my friends were ironing their curls flat with the family steam iron or taming their hair by sleeping in rollers made out of empty soda cans. This natural freedom of our hair was a silent form of social protest, a visible reminder that we would not be slaves to fashion the way our mothers were. They, after all, were getting a wash and set once a week at the beauty parlor, a foreign world to me. Some of my classmates had older sisters and brothers who were involved in more active social protests about the war in Vietnam, sexism, racism, and pollution. Occasionally, these concerns would trickle down to us, ignite small flames of dissidence, but mostly, I was watching the world from a safe distance. By the time of high school graduation, the specter of the draft was over, and it looked like life could settle down into that Norman Rockwell painting that we were all pretending to reject. I smugly entered the corporate world, convinced that sexism, racism, and all the dirty and unfair practices had been eradicated by the dedicated protesting of the social groundbreakers who preceded me. Wrong. I learned quickly that mini skirts and long natural hair made office type men think more about playboy centerfolds than equal pay for equal work. More than once, 
at the hallway water fountain, I was patted, slapped, or pinched by men old enough to be my grandfather. I had supervisors who leered, stood too close, leaned over me, and propositioned me. The day that the corporate powers finally responded to the plight of their female employees by allowing us to wear pantsuits to work was truly a day of liberation. I decided to cut my hair. The first cut was traumatic, a bowl-shaped thing that didn't seem to make me look any older or enhance my credibility. This easy style now meant getting up 45 minutes earlier to coax all those short ends to hang the same way. I bought a new thing called a blow dryer and tried to get those ends to curve back from my face like Farrah Fawcett. What I got was a look closer to olive oil. The next few years went by in a blur of visits to the personnel office, a lot of grumbling from management, real concessions followed by promotions, along with curling irons, hot rollers, makeup demonstrations, and palazzo pants. One day, a friend of mine mentioned that she was ending her hairstyle woes by going for a perm, and suddenly the afro for white girls was born. My first perm was a marathon. I spent four hours in the chair having my hair wrapped by two stylists who yelled at each other above the blaring disco music about their wild party lifestyle. I learned permanent wave lesson number one. Don't let two people roll your hair. One side of my head ended up kinked in a perfectly semicircular shape, while the other side had more of a bozo sticking out from my head look. Four more hours in the chair. This liberating hairstyle freed me from the hot roller blow dryer rooting, but this didn't make me sleep any later in the morning. No one told me that I would wake up in the morning flattened on one side. Spray bottles full of water and long-toothed hair picks became mandatory. I even figured out how to get that spray bottle into my motorcycle jacket pocket, ready to spritz the minute I took my helmet off. I cut the perm back, let it grow, found different ways to shape it, and got married with a jumble of curls on my head. As a mother, I continued to alternately cut my hair short to be less work, and then to let it grow out to look younger. When gray began to invade my trusses, I zapped it away with varying degrees of artificial color. No wonder I find myself staring in the mirror. After all, this isn't supposed to be how things would be as I matured. I'm quite surprised that my body, which has been with me up the corporate ladder, a few rungs anyway, into the maternity ward three times, through the funeral parlor, how can it be that I am suddenly the oldest in my family? And around and around the 90s domestic scene no longer gets mistaken for a lift teenager. And my life, once supposed to be perfect balance between personal fulfillment and domestic tranquility, is more like a cross between an Olympic marathon and a pie-throwing contest. Even worse, after all the battles, I am still fighting to get each and every hair on my head into an exact geometrically predetermined position. Considering how the world has changed, I guess it is only natural. The manicure. Whose hands these are, I think I know. The nails were once much shorter, though. For the first time in my life, I have perfectly shaped, strong, and vivid fingernails. 
Sure, I've polished them before, even had a few professional manicures, but always I was on the outside of manicure culture. Nail technicians would shake their heads over my tiny, thin, short nails and preach to me the virtues of tips. My family would compare my hands to those of a young boy, rough, splintered, bitten. I like to think my hands were a badge of honor, proving to the world that I washed dishes, hammered nails, cut grass, and changed tires. Mine were the hands and nails of a no-nonsense woman with no time for foolish vanity. The popularity of vivid long nails did not escape me. Every town has several nail salons catering to the airbrushed acrylic crowd. Salons offer miniature works of art, palm trees and sailboats, fireworks and stars painted on your nails. My nails, of course, didn't have room for even the tiniest rendering of a coconut. Yet I prided myself on being able to function without worrying about breaking a nail. I maintained full use of my fingertips while other women were often forced to use their knuckles to do things like dial a phone. Without the laser scanner, I wonder how many cashiers with dragon lady nails would be able to ring up my groceries. It's just insanity, I told myself. These were my thoughts before my daughter and her boyfriend presented me with a gift certificate to a spa that, among other things, does nails. One afternoon, I found myself entering the scented and curtained nail spa, clutching my gift certificate. After I spoke with the person at the desk, explaining that I wanted to try nail improvements, words spread quickly through the salon. First time, they whispered, their eyes appraising me. Client and technician alike turned to evaluate me and my hands. I felt like the virgin sacrificed at some barbaric fertility rite. The technician assigned to me looked disapprovingly down at my toes sticking out of my summer sandals. Pedicure too, she suggested, but I declined. My feet are so ticklish, I don't think I could stand it. From the look she gave my naked toenails, I wanted to hide my feet under the nearest potted plant. We approached her station, a shiny black table upon which a row of gleaming sterile instruments was placed. She looked ready to perform surgery. I was ready for anesthesia. First, she examined my hand, shaking her head and clicking her tongue. First time, first time, she kept saying. I began to wonder if I was supposed to give her an extra large tip for having to deal with my manicure naivete. She asked me what I wanted done, and not knowing the nail salon jargon, I blurted out something like, make them look better, longer. She sighed, looked over her tools, and made her diagnosis. Crystal, she said finally. She could have said hydrochloric acid for all it meant to me. But before I could assume the mantle of crystal nails, there was the matter of my cuticles, which apparently had grown to cover my entire body. Using a tool that I swear was nothing more than a hobby-sized drill with a spinning sandpaper tip, she began to hack through my cuticles. Soon the table was full of cuticle debris, pieces were flying through the air, some hitting me in the face. A drop of sweat formed on the technician's forehead. Yeah, I said, jumping back as her whirring contraption hit some live tissue. Oh, sorry, she said, but her smile did not seem to hold any regret. She grabbed a small bottle of green liquid and dabbed it on the reddened area. The sting of it was intense. It's nothing, it's nothing, she said with that same smile. 
My finger throbbed in response. In the end, I made it through with only two cuticle injuries, which they tell me is quite good for a first-timer. The next stage of the manicure truly involves some engineering genius. Since my nails were embarrassingly short and small, tips were out of the question. They laughed as they tried to size fake nails to my hands. Some of them covered my entire finger. Instead, the technician rummaged through her surgical supplies and came up with a pile of strange-looking metal and plastic things that looked like sheet metal with a clamp. She took each one and clamped it to my fingertip, pushing the metal underneath whatever little scrap of nail I had, tightening the contraption. Then she grabbed a brush, magic powder, and some kind of liquid and began dabbing at my fingertips one by one. With a few deft strokes, she created what appeared to be a genuine fingernail at the end of each finger. I was astounded at how quickly and efficiently she worked. Soon, I had a whole hand of clamped and cased nails. To my surprise, when she removed the metal clamps, the nails just stayed in place. This is a miracle of modern science, I thought. The rest of the manicure seemed standard, lots of filing and shaping, and the application of the pale peach color I selected. I just could not bring myself to indulge in the fuchsias and purples that I saw going on the nails of my fellow salon clients. A hot towel and a moisturizing hand massage followed. For a person who works on a computer all day, the hand massage was worth the entire price of the manicure. So now I have fashionable nails. My hands look like they belong to someone else. For two days, I could hardly dress myself for fear of breaking something. One night I dreamed that all my fingertips were on fire and found myself desperately trying to blow out my thumbs. Proof positive that I had fully succumbed to this hot new trend. Who knows, next time I may even go purple. The colors, lovely, dark, and deep, as long as filling dates I keep, and moisturize before I sleep, and moisturize before I sleep. We girls can do anything with Barbie. Recently, I opened up my storage shed and pulled out 14 large containers that housed my Barbie collection. From childhood, and especially from the 80s and 90s, I had collected various versions of this doll. When I had a larger house, they were on display. When the kids and I moved to the teeny house, they were relegated to the storage shed to hibernate for 18 years. Their collectible value decreased gradually over the years as the collectible market crashed along with the stock market. And in some part, Barbie herself fell out of favor. There was a lot of talk about the doll creating inappropriate body images in the heads of girls and probably some boys too. And Barbie became to some the epitome of a brainless bimbo concerned only about her unattainable appearance. But I would protest, this was not the Barbie I knew. Okay, yes, she still had that figure and feet molded to forever wear high heels, but bimbo? True, that intense pink aisle in the toy store is really a bit much, and some of the outfits border on the indecent. Yet for me, that wasn't really Barbie. For me, Barbie was the fiercely independent woman that many of us growing up in the 60s and 70s aspired to be like. It was something Mattel finally realized with the We Girls Can Do Anything campaign. 
and as I looked over my collection one last time before sending it to the auction house, I could see that Barbie. President Barbie. Astronaut Barbie, who wasn't available for the We Girls Can Do Anything crowd, but did come along later. Veterinarian Barbie. Firefighter Barbie. Police Officer Barbie. Barbie wrapped in historical garb from all sorts of errors, and admittedly, some of those outfits were more historically accurate than others. There was also an assortment of Princess Barbies commemorating holidays and seasons. Perhaps this was Barbie's career of the quintessential fashion model. It has been said by other writers that Barbie reflects who is in charge of her at Mattel. When someone who has the bimbo Barbie in mind, out comes that image. And perhaps that is the image that has been dominating Barbie in the intervening years that I wasn't watching or collecting her. So today, I was pleased to see a new commercial for Barbie, one that made me smile and even laugh a bit. A commercial that uses humor to bring home a serious point about an enduring staple in the toy department, like her or not. It makes me wish I had saved President Barbie or Astronaut Barbie from going to the auction. Johnny Mathis, My Parents, and Me. It has been said that time heals all wounds. I don't agree. The wounds remain. Time, the mind protecting its sanity, covers them with some scar tissue and the pain lessens, but it is never gone. Rose Kennedy. Marge, Bill, and Bob. Without them, I would not be me. Today, June 17, 2017, my mother would have turned 85 years old. We lost her way too soon, at age 56 in 1988. It was a loss that no child is ever prepared for, even as an adult, and for us, it was a devastating blow. Only four months later, we also lost the man who was father to my sisters and stepfather to me, as my own father, Bill, died at age 23 when I was just three weeks old. Birthdays, anniversaries, and holidays always are a time to pause and think about the ones who are no longer with us. And this weekend, in combining both my mother's birthday and Father's Day, brought thoughts of all of them to me. Tonight, quite by chance, I turned on the local PBS channel and found they were showing a concert featuring Johnny Mathis, who was celebrating 60-plus years of performance. A nanosecond of the musical arrangement, and I recognized the song and the artist. This was not just nostalgia from my babyhood, I am myself celebrating 60 plus years of life. It was the soundtrack of my young life. His was the music my young mother listened to in widowed loneliness, and then the music that created the bond between her and the new love that entered her life. They were inseparable, Marge and Bob. My mother, a scant four foot 10, and my stepfather at five foot 11, they were easy to spot in a crowd. For me, their wedding was the greatest celebration I had ever been to, and while they were honeymooning, I proudly announced to everyone on the subway that, now I have a daddy. My mortified Aunt Stella, it was 1958 after all, found herself explaining to complete strangers about my father's death when I was so young and my mother's remarriage. Soon, two little sisters joined me. We moved from Brooklyn to New Jersey and each home the huge hi-fi came with us, as well as the complete collection of Johnny Mathis albums. 
Christmas was not complete without his renditions. For sure there were other favorites, but Johnny was king. As I grew, there were the Monkees, Simon and Garfunkel, Chicago, Boston, and then all the disco hit makers like Donna Summer and Casey and the Sunshine Band. Pop from the 60s and 70s provided the soundtrack for my teen and young adult years. Yet nothing would stop me in my tracks, like hearing the strains of a Johnny Mathis song played in a restaurant or a store or at a wedding. No one could beat me at Name That Tune when the first second of a Mathis song played. It was not just music I knew, it was music indelibly inscribed in the part of my brain where only the most precious things are stored. It took a long time after 1988 to be able to hear Johnny sing without bursting into tears. I also spent a lot of time crying to The Living Years by Mike and the Mechanics. The pain was raw and deep, compounded by the inescapable feeling that I had now lost three parents, all too young, and all leaving me with unanswered questions and unfinished business. It is 62 years since the man who gave me life left me, 29 since the man who raised me and the woman who loved them both left. Today on my mother's birthday and the day before Father's Day, I feel a deep sense of connection to all of them, a feeling of warmth and love. The feeling of loss is still there, but in listening to their music, no, listening to our music, I feel that time has curved in a giant arc, bringing me closer to the time we shared. Such is the power of memory. Such is the power of love. Such is the power of music. Thank you, Johnny Mathis, for being the cosmic force that brings my parents back to me. Independence Day, 1776, and Irma Bombeck. This time of year, I think about my favorite Broadway play, 1776. The music is wonderful, the story well presented, and perhaps the fact that I first saw it back when I was an idealistic teenager has something to do with my affection for it. I could not help but be caught up in the portrayal of John Adams as an annoying buzzing fly, among the other annoying buzzing flies in Philadelphia, who doesn't give up on his vision of what a new country United States of America could become. If only his compatriots could see what he saw. I still get goosebumps just thinking about the roll call at the end and how they all end up frozen in place to match the famous painting. Yes, the music, the bells, the humor, it accomplishes the whole point of leaving the audience with swelling pride. But also, in some respects, an underlying current of sorrow. Sadness, perhaps, for the distance between aspiration and accomplishment that still exist. The history of the U.S. is full of bright lights and dark caverns. We have at times been the beacon of hope for the world and at other times lost our way in the shadows. It is a history we must pay attention to, to keep the light burning bright while acknowledging the darkness and keeping it at bay. This year I worry more than I ever have, about the soul of the United States. Our collective minds debate daily what should be the future path, and our hearts are pendulums that traverse from stone-cold indifference to tearful empathy. But our souls seem the most fragile and endangered. At times, we seem to teeter on the edge of losing them forever, either through willful abandonment or the sweep of powerful tidal forces. 
My wish for the U.S. on this Independence Day is that we choose the path where hope is still the beacon we shine to the world, and there is no one like Irma Bombeck who can cut through all the noise and remind us with a smile what this day is about. You have to love a nation that celebrates Independence Day every July 4th. Not with a parade of guns, tanks, and soldiers who file by the White House in a show of strength and muscle, but with family picnics where kids throw frisbees, the potato salad gets iffy, and the flies die from happiness. You may think you have overeaten, but it is patriotism. Happy Halloween! Tales from my Halloween podcast. My affinity for the funny and whimsical side of Halloween goes back to my childhood. I never wanted to be a scary character, but something fun and fantastical. Even when I dressed as a witch, I was always a good witch. The year I was a flower girl for my uncle's wedding, I wanted to go trick-or-treating as a bride, complete with a lacy white dress, a veil, and a bouquet. I had a bride outfit for my Barbie with a pearl tiara and satin lace trimmed dress and pictured being her twin. Shortly before Halloween, my mother came home with my costume. This was, unfortunately, in the days of the plastic costume and mask in a box. She smiled, so proud of herself that she had found a Halloween bride in a box costume. But what I saw through the clear cellophane of the box top was not the fantasy Barbie bride of my dreams, but a bloody-faced mask with a dirt and rip-painted plastic evil vampire bride tunic. The story makes me smile today, but at the time I was mortified, which is an appropriate mood for a vampire bride. My children were influenced by my ha-ha Halloween attitude and preferred fun characters, hero and shiro costumes, pirates, mermaids, World War I flying aces, and other creative themes. In fact, one year, my oldest daughter found my old suede bell-bottom pants and a crocheted granny top and decided to go as a hippie flower child. She wore this outfit to the annual Halloween parade and costume contest at the Milltown, New Jersey American Legion. We all clapped when she was selected as a prize winner, but surprised when she won it for scariest costume. As the Legion members presented her, her with her award, he explained, we veterans of the 60s and 70s decided that hippie scared us. Then he laughed. The kids were confused, but those of us of a certain age got the joke. My son recalls a teen experience that happened on mischief night, that night before Halloween that some traditions say that kids can get into mischief with no repercussions. Personally, I think it's a bad idea and never knowingly allowed my kids out to participate. But my son, somehow that night, was out on the street with his friends and encountered local police officers. He asked if they had any eggs, the source of a lot of mischief night damage. The boys all denied having any eggs. The police officers then said, okay, so nothing in your pockets? And began tapping the boys' pockets. There was the sound of eggs breaking. My son swears he only had one egg on him and remains mad to this day. Me, picturing the boys with their egg soggy pants, can't help but smile. The mayor of Jamesburg, New Jersey, where I live, shared a similar story with me. Here's what she wrote. My son and his friends were planning to go out on mischief night. 
This started when they were around 10 to 12 years old. I caught wind of their plan, and so did another mom when we found stockpiles of toilet paper. I told them I would take them out, but we could only use toilet paper and only on our friends' houses. So off we go, just after dark, four boys and a mom. We do their own houses, and other friends we know wouldn't mind a little toilet paper. We pull onto a particular street, which was also a dead end. I turn off my lights, and the boys got out and started running down the street. Next, I hear the kids yelling, cops! I slink down in my seat as he passes. The kids scatter and hide, all except my son. The officer calls his name as he stands there with toilet paper in hand. The officer knew my son and almost all the kids in town who went through his D.A.R.E. program at school. He asks my son, does your mother know what you are doing? He turns and points his finger and says, ask her, she's right there. I try to sit up straight and not look guilty for contributing to the delinquency of a minor. The officer backs up and shakes his head, laughs and drives away. My sister Peggy remembers the time she made group costumes for her daughters, Becky and Jen, and my sister Teresa's son, Joey. She took a clear plastic bag, filled it with dry leaves, and attached a hanging tag to create a giant tea bag costume for Joey. Then she made a teapot and teacup sandwich board type costume for the girls. The two younger kids were fine with it, but Becky absolutely did not like it. However, they won Best Group Costume at another Milltown American Legion Halloween parade. I'm guessing the award was some consolation for being a Tea Party member long before the Tea Party movement became a thing. Fellow laughter professional Miriam Gassman recalled her before punk hair gel days idea to make her hair stick straight up for Halloween. For some reason, she thought that slathering her hair with Vaseline would do the trick. Well, not only did that not work, but she was forced to go to school for the next week with greasy hair that took several days of washing to fix. Any teen will tell you, that's a real horror story. Halloween was not so fun the year Hurricane Sandy blasted New Jersey, and so many people were without power and just trying to assess property damages. Governor Christie even signed an executive order to move the date of trick-or-treating. It was the second year in a row that New Jersey kids had weather almost destroy Halloween. The previous year, a freak heavy wet snowstorm played havoc with the celebrations. But out of these two years of more tricks than treats came a surge in popularity of trunk or treat, a kind of tailgate Halloween party held in school and mall parking lots. People load their car trunks with treats and decorations and the kids make the rounds. Now that is how to keep the ha ha in Halloween. Thank you for listening to this episode of Treading Water. I hope you enjoyed it and we'll stay tuned for the next one.